0: Good morning, welcome to Equipping Hour. Let me pray for us and we'll get started with our time this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another morning to soak our brains and our hearts and our wills under the faucet of your word. We pray again to have our thoughts calibrated to your thoughts, to, to think the way that you think about ourselves and about our world. And we just pray that our view, our perspective, uh, would be shaped and guided uh, clearly by your word uh, and not squeezed into the shape and the mold of the thinking of a world in rebellion against you. And we ask for your help in this in Jesus' name. Narcissus, in Greek mythology was the guy who, walking through the woods, discovered a pond and in that pond discovered his own reflection and became so enraptured, in fact infatuated with his own reflection, that he just camped there. All of life went by. Uh, There were some who vied for his attention, even a potential love interest he completely and totally ignored. He rather was married to himself. Staring into his own reflection, wasted his entire life, and according to Greek mythology, his body withered away into a flower, the narcissist flower, that just hangs out by the pond. His life was a total waste. His self-absorption was a self-destructive tendency. It is a disordered thinking. It's a disorder, I believe, that we are all born with. Uh, Narcissism is a technical category of mental disorder. And I'm going to read the description for you from the DSM-5. That is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Psychiatric and Psychological Care. How do you know that something's wrong with your thinking, according to the world? And its scientists, you read the DSM-5, you read the descriptions, and you see what mental disease or disorder that you have. Well, they, they have an entry for narcissism. I'm going to read to you from the description. And and as I'm reading this, you you may listen carefully and think, oh, man, I have that. Look around the room and think, oh, they have it too. This disease is contagious. Is there anybody on this earth who does not have narcissism clinically diagnosed? Here we go. According to the DSM-5, Narcissistic personality disorder is a personality disorder with a long term pattern of behavior characterized by exaggerating feelings of self importance, an excessive need for admiration, and a lack of empathy. People affected by it often spend a lot of time thinking about achieving power or success or about their appearance. They often take advantage of the people around them. The behavior typically begins in early adulthood and occurs across a variety of social situations. Here are some symptoms. Grandiosity with expectations of superior treatment from other people, fixation on fantasies of power, success, intelligence, or attractiveness, a self-perception of being unique, superior, associated with high-status people and institutions, the need for continual admiration from others, a sense of entitlement to special treatment and to obedience from others, exploitative use of others to achieve personal gain, an unwillingness to empathize with the feelings, wishes, and needs of other people, to be intensely envious of others, the belief that others are equally envious of them, pompous or arrogant demeanor. Now the DSM-5 goes on to illustrate that these traits, which I would suggest are (laughs) traits that all of us carry, that these traits must rise to a level of maladaptive levels. That is, you must be so characterized by these things that you can't function normally in society. I would suggest to you that all of these traits, all of these characteristics are fundamentally opposite what God made humanity to be, and they characterize all of us and that we all exercise maladaptive behavior to the detriment of those around us, our self-absorption has become the norm. In fact, we are so self-absorbed that we are not self-aware of our self-absorption. Self-love, self-absorption, narcissism, in my view, has become the new virtue in our society. In fact, a a failure at self care, a failure at self love, a a failure at self esteem is seen in our world as the disease. And this is a disease the world seeks to fix. And, And we feel that at every level. You feel that in sports with little kids, where we're all told everybody's a winner, everybody gets a trophy. We all need to be built up. No one can have a, a sense of loss or, or shame or any sort of negative feelings about self. In fact, we all must be rescued from negative feelings about self. It's easy to see uh, overreaching narcissism in other people. Have you noticed this? When someone comes into the room and and they have the appearance that they believe they're the most important or the brightest or maybe the only person in the room compared to all the other peons. And it's interesting to see what happens when two overly narcissistic people come into the same room or when 8 billion of them inhabit the same planet Eventually, this is a self-destructive perspective on a global scale. If everyone loves himself supremely, then we must be ready to annihilate all others in our pathway to get what we want. What's tragic in our world today is, while we might point out some prominent individuals as being obviously narcissistic, This narcissistic tendency finds its way in the heart and life of every lowly person as well who wishes they could be grandiose and seen as the best and the brightest. Our world is a world of radical self-absorption. I'm going to quote an anthem that is... uh, sung and resung in our world. Listen to these words. I think they reflect the, the human impulse and the cultural impulse of our day. So close, no matter how far. Couldn't be much more from the heart. Forever trusting who we are. Nothing else matters. I've never opened myself this way. Life is ours. We, we live it our way. All these words, I don't just say. And nothing else matters. I don't care for what they do. Never cared for what they know. And it just repeats these same words. What is it that matters above all things according to that anthem? Trust of self. Life is mine. I live it my way. And no one will get in my way of doing things my way. There's nothing new about that anthem. The, the songs of humanity's expression have been about self. The poetry has been about self. The literature has been about self. But in a significant way, Our culture has ridden the coattails of a biblical worldview in this culture for many years, and a biblical worldview that is radically opposed to self-exaltation and self-absorption. A worldview that is grounded in the glory of God in Jesus Christ, who was self-emptying for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. And so the norm for Christians has been to be like Jesus, to fundamentally be self-giving, self-emptying, self-deprecating. I'm not particularly concerned with the culture around us, with the self-absorbed culture of a fallen and broken world. We're, we're of course, all born self-absorbed. We should expect nothing less from 8 billion people on the earth who fundamentally worship at the altar of self. But I am concerned this morning more with the mindset of Christians toward the self. I believe that we have, in a very real sense, been pressed into the mold of this world on thinking about self. We have been squeezed into the way the world around us thinks. We have begun to embrace, as a Christian subculture, the self-absorbed culture of the people around us. There are cultural phrases that come out of the Bible. Sometimes it's confusing to know hey, does that come from the Bible or, or somewhere else? A fly in the ointment, for instance, comes right out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Eye for eye comes from the book of Leviticus. Dust to dust comes from the book of Genesis. And you start to think, OK, what are these other phrases that we just sort of use in common culture? People know and they've never cracked their Bible. You know, "A penny saved is a penny earned." That kind of sound Is that in the Bible? That one's not in the Bible. A watched pot never boils. No, that one's not in there either. Uh, what about this one? God helps those who help themselves." That's not in the Bible. But it just sort of flows off the tongue, and it has for many years. In fact, you could hear people say, as the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. It's not in there. But I think there is another common colloquial phrase that has usurped the place of God helps those who help themselves as a phrase that is commonly believed stems from the Bible because it has been repeated by Christians, It has been embraced by the church and has even become the new virtue in the church. And, and it is the sentiment that you must love yourself if you are going to be able to love others. Have you heard this? How, how can you love other people if you don't love yourself first? You must learn to love yourself as the foundation for appropriately, adequately, biblically... Loving others. We want to debunk that a little bit this morning, dismantle that sentiment. And so we're going to be talking about the allure and the deception of narcissism this morning. Listen, it's attractive from a sinful perspective, and I would say from a Genesis 3 satanic perspective, to ignore God, put our eyes down into the pond in the woods, see our own reflection, and think, that's what I need to worship and sit there at the pond and waste our lives in self-absorption. That's natural, that's normal, it's virtuous in our world today, but it is completely and totally anti-biblical. And we need to see the stark contrast. I want to think about how how this perspective of self-esteem as a new Christian virtue made its way into the church. And, and our outline this morning is just the word self-hyphen with about five words in a row after it. We could have done 15 or 20. This is somewhat arbitrary, the five that I've selected. I hope you can benefit from the progression. But we're going to talk first about self-esteem. Uh, let's talk first about this phenomenon of self-esteem. According to our culture, according to the mantra of our day, man's greatest problem is a lack of self-esteem. And if you were to think about what, what is it that man does, how does he mistreat other people, why is he disordered in his thoughts and behaviors? Fundamentally, our world says, it is because man does not esteem himself highly enough. And again, we could grant that our culture would go down that path. It's only normal. The entire world is sitting next to the pond staring at itself going, wow, how great am I? How did this come into the church? I want to put in front of you uh, a book that came out in 1982 uh, by a well-known, perhaps one of the most well-known pastors in church history, a man by the name of Robert Schuler. If you're unfamiliar with Robert Schuler, I, I think he uh, left this Earth, uh, not in a good way, in about 2015. But I grew up listening to Robert Schuller and the Hour of Power, seeing it on TV from the Crystal Cathedral broadcast around the world. And in its heyday, Robert Schuller's Hour of Power was the most watched religious program in world history up to its point. And Robert Schuller's sermons were the most listened to sermons across the globe. I don't know if he has yet been surpassed. There's a lot of cassette tapes and downloads of other preachers since Robert Schuller's heyday. But just know when the, the TV was on around the world and people tuned into their pastor, they listened to Robert Schuller in the Hour of Power. Robert Schuller wrote this book in 1982 entitled Self-Esteem Colon The New Reformation. And that title is significant because Robert Schuller set out in that book to make a parallel between the Protestant Reformation, you you can think 1517 and Martin Luther, 95 theses, nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg, that that spawned the gospel and the Bible going out in the common languages of Europe and then spreading to the ends of the earth. The gospel rediscovered, the Bible rediscovered, and a reformation. And Robert Schuller said, that was great. Calvin, Luther, those guys, they needed to do that. Uh, They needed to talk to the church about churchy things. But we need a new reformation today. And if the church is going to talk to the world about stuff that it needs, it needs a reformation in its messaging. And and what I'm going to do, this is is really going to be an awful exercise. I'm going to read to you from Robert Schuller's book. I want you to listen to the way he takes... Critical Reformation vocabulary, all the words we love, words like redemption, reconciliation, Uh, technical biblical vocabulary like sin and glory and justification and salvation. And he takes all of those words that Christians were familiar with and he reinvents them, gives them new meaning to instill a new reformation so the church could get out of its own way and finally reach the world. What was the good news that Robert Schuler sought to reach the world with? The good news of the glory of self-esteem. That's the point of the book. And he steals all of our vocabulary to make it. So, here we go, and I'm, I'm I'm apologizing up front for the things you're about to hear. I, I know I gave a content warning last week. I did not give a content warning this morning. I'm not asking you to leave. You just have to endure what I'm about to read. A psychiatrist wrote to Schuler about their shared views. This is in the introduction of the book. And he says, you have pursued a religious route, I've pursued a scientific path, and we both arrived at the same bottom line. Unconditional self-esteem. That's the answer for humanity. Self-love does not have to be earned because it is given. From a psychiatric point of view, I would say man's deepest flaw is to mistrust himself and to withhold love and self-acceptance from himself. Perhaps we are at an era where psychiatric and religious thinking can be synergistic. And if you think about church history or theological history, it is this convergence of the psychological and biblical vocabulary that happened in the middle of the 20th century, culminating in Robert Schuler's Reformation book on self-esteem, that popularized the notion that something that was once a satanic viewpoint now becomes the norm and the virtue and the thing we must all aspire to, self-love, self-esteem. The psychiatrist recognized it in Schuller's theology. So here's Schuler's words. I am convinced that the deepest of all human needs is salvation from sin and hell. Sounds great, right? He says, we now come to the problem of semantics. What do I mean by sin? Answer. Any human condition or act that robs God of glory by stripping one of his children of their right to divine Dignity. Sin is that deep lack of trust that separates me from God and leaves me with a sense of shame and unworthiness. Sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. That's how Schuller redefined sin. Anything that robs you of self-esteem. And what is hell, he says? It's the loss of pride that follows from a loss of self-respect. He says, self-esteem or pride in humanity is the single greatest need facing the human race today. He says, I call upon the church to make a commitment to remodel itself until it becomes the best thing that ever happened to the human race. The church becomes the best friend for all people when we proclaim the gospel of faith, hope, and love, which truly stimulates and sustains human self-esteem. The basic defect in much of modern Christianity is the failure to proclaim the gospel in a way that can satisfy every person's deepest need, one's spiritual hunger for glory. The time has come now, nearly 500 years since the Protestant Reformation, for theologians and Christians in general to pass judgment on the answers given by these men to what is the ultimate theological question. Did you hear that? It's time for us to judge the Protestant reformers. They got it wrong. Where the 16th century reformation returned our focus to sacred scripture as the only infallible rule of faith and practice. The new reformation will return our focus to the sacred right of every person to self-esteem. He goes on to say the Bible's not infallible. He says we shouldn't look to Romans. That was written by Paul. We should look instead to the heart of Jesus. And he'll go on to describe Jesus as elevating human self-esteem. He says, if we can agree on the need to bend our theological thinking to the lordship of Christ, then we must ask this question. What is our Lord's deepest desire? What is his highest hope, most pressing passion, most crucial concern? If Jesus Christ could stand before you and me and before your Christian church and mine, how would he complete this sentence? The real issue is, and Schuler fills in the blank, receive and enjoy the fruit of salvation, self-esteem, self-worth. Hear God's call to you. He would save you for high and holy service to be proud of who you are. Stop putting yourself down. Start enjoying the dignity that is your God-intended destiny. He says the level of the lordship of Christ in a life can be measured by the rising level of Christian self-worth. He says we must proclaim the good news. God wants to reclaim and redeem lost humanity. We must tell people everywhere that God wants all of us to feel good about ourselves. Our primary problem, though, is a lack of trust, first and most, in ourself. If there can be one generalized description of the human predicament in the world today, it's a lack of self-esteem. One reason Christians behaved so badly in the past is because we have been taught from infancy to adulthood how sinful and how worthless we are. That self-image will always incarnate in action. Classical Reformed theology, he says, declares that we are conceived and born rebellious sinners. But that answer is too shallow. It ignores the tough question. Why would love-needing persons resist, rebel against, and reject beautiful love? The answer? We are born non-trusting. Deep down we feel we are not good enough to approach the glory of God. It is precisely at this point that classical theology has erred in its insistence that theology be God-centered rather than man-centered. Can you believe that sentence? Theology is too God-centered. He says, what a great example of the glorious gospel the church now has to proclaim. We have the theological, psychological therapy for persons who suffer from inferiority complexes. What is guilt but an ugly loss of self-esteem? If only we could love ourselves enough to dare to approach God. The core of original sin is an innate inability to value ourselves. I am humanly unable to correct my negative self-image until I encounter the life-changing experience with the non-judgmental love bestowed on me by a person that I admire so much that to be unconditionally accepted by him is to be born again. If the ideal one, listen to this, receives me as his peer and treats me as his equal, then something profoundly deep will happen at the core of my personality. I will be born again. That is Genesis 3. That is satanic. And Robert Shuler defines that as what it means to be born again. To be on God's level. To see yourself as worthy. When we are adopted as children of God, he says, the core of our life changes from shame to self-esteem. And we can pray, our Father in heaven, honorable is our name. I almost don't want to read that out loud for fear of a lightning strike. Reformation theology failed to make clear that the core of sin is a lack of self-esteem. The most serious sin is the one that causes me to say I'm unworthy. He says, I may have no claim to divine sonship if you examine me at my worst, for once a person believes he's an unworthy sinner, it's doubtful if he can ever really honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Jesus Christ. That is exactly the opposite of the gospel. Schuler defines the kingdom of God as that invisible collection of committed Christians that transcends cultures, ideologies, nationalistic prejudices, and creeds, all bound by the golden commitment. Here he redefines the golden rule. The golden commitment to say nothing and do nothing that would attack the self-esteem of another human being, whether or not they are committed members of the kingdom of God. He says, No theology of salvation, no theology of the church, No theology of Christ, no theology of sin and repentance and regeneration and discipleship can be regarded as authentically Christian if it does not begin with and continue to keep its focus on the right of every person to be treated with honor, dignity, and respect. At the same time, any creed, any biblical interpretation, any systematic theology that assaults and offends the self-esteem of persons is heretically failing to be truly Christian, no matter how interlaced, interfaced, or undergirded it might be with biblical references. Schuller says, don't believe what your Bible says. Trust me, if you don't worship at the altar of self-esteem, you are a heretic. All this while he wore the clerical robes and they played the organ and piped sermons to the world. He says, the self-esteem of each person and the collective self-esteem of the community then become the holy norm, the unwavering moral north star that controls social ethics. In this kind of a theology of social ethics, we believe that any act, thought, word, or deed is sinful that lowers human pride. All right, that's enough. Can't take it anymore. Robert Shuler's mentor was a man by the name of Norman Vincent Peale who wrote a groundbreaking book called The Power of Positive Thinking. And while Norman Vincent Peale's idea was just get rid of negativity and and think positively about things, Robert Shuler upped the ante and said the, the thing we must most positively think about if we are to be Christians, in his view, is a high view of self. I would contend that as shocking as these things sound to us, they have shaped Christian culture in our day. If you even probe at the thought that self-esteem is important, the responses are remarkable. The vitriol that comes out. Prior to Robert Schuller, such thoughts would have been seen as anathema straight out of the the garden and the temptation of the serpent to the man and the woman. And yet they are so the norm in our world and have invaded through the church to become the norm of even Christian thinking in our day. And I would suggest that this thinking, this elevation of self, this esteem of self, is patently unbiblical. And it is foundationally destructive. You, you heard in the rewrite of all of those terms, those precious terms of salvation, Robert Shuler has said exactly the opposite of God's intention. Listen to the very simple command or prohibition here in Romans chapter 12. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. To be sober in our thoughts, to, to think rightly, will be to embrace God's assessment of the human condition. And it's not a pretty assessment, God does not worship at the altar of human self-esteem. He has said every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of man is only evil continually, Genesis 6-5. He looks down on mankind in Romans 3 and says, there is not one good, no, not even one. And humanity fights against God's diagnosis. No, 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 I'm good. I'm good enough. And our culture, even our Christian culture today, spends its time patting itself, patting each other on the back and saying, I'm good, you're good, we're all okay, right? And such thoughts will never lead you to a gospel that rescues you from self. Let's talk about self-love for a moment. Self-love is seen as the, the best love, the highest love. We're in the season of NBA playoff games. The National Basketball Association is holding its breath as we wait to see who's going to be the best. And competitive sports is an interesting endeavor of, of pitting merit against merit to see who comes out on top. Lonnie Walker is a professional basketball player who just recently had a spectacular fourth quarter in an NBA playoff game. After the game, Walker was interviewed about his performance that sealed a win for his team, and he said this, truth be told, it might sound narcissistic or not, but I'm in love with myself, and I want to be my best self. I think that's the real goal. I'm ambitious to become a star. Now, that's a remarkable confession. And he begins it with, it might sound narcissistic, don't call me a narcissist, but I'm in love with myself. (laughs) Yeah, that's narcissistic. (laughs) Fundamentally, it is. Self-love is not a virtue. And yet, the culture looks at that and says, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Whitney Houston sang a song that in, in my growing up days, I heard sung in churches as special music. You know, you stand up, sit down, congregational singing, offertory, and then at the offertory, somebody gets up and sings a solo. And, and more than once, I heard Whitney Houston's song sung. And, and the song is titled, The Greatest Love. Oh, what a great title. What a, what a great thing to sing about in church. I mean, faith, hope, and love remain. The greatest of these is love. And, and then to think about the greatest love... Wow, what a a good theme that would be to sing in church. Listen to the words. And don't start singing it if you know it. I believe that children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. So far, so good. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. Let the children's laughter remind us how we used to be. Everybody's searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to. I never found anyone who fulfilled my needs. It's a lonely place to be. So I learned to depend on me. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. If I fail, if I succeed... Why am I getting all worked up about this? If I fail, if I succeed... At least I lived as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity because the greatest love of all is happening to me. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. And, and maybe when it's put to music, we don't hear what she's saying. We hum along. We sing along. I'm just here for the beat, you know. Do Do you recognize the song of the serpent? That is a cultural anthem. That's even sung in church. This is a a tragic turn in the Christian worldview. We need to debunk something, that this, this thought that you have to love self first in order to love others well. Think about the greatest commandment in Scripture. You know it. Love God. And what is the second? To love others. And listen to how this is worded. We'll pick... Uh, Matthew twenty two thirty nine, Jesus' words. The, the second command is like the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now let's back up and, and listen to the, all, the, all the places this is worded. Jesus says in Matthew 19, honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second, commandment, second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Mark twelve thirty one. the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And then Romans 13, don't commit adultery, don't commit murder, don't steal, don't covet. And any other commandment is summed up in this saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians five fourteen, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James two eight. If you are willing to fulfil if you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Then you're doing well. And all of these appeal to two phrases in Leviticus nineteen. Leviticus nineteen eighteen says this You shall not take vengeance, you shall not bear a grudge against the sons of your people, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. And then Leviticus 19.34, the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt, I am Yahweh your God. So the injunction from Leviticus, and then it gets echoed in the New Testament on the lips of Jesus, is love others as you love yourself. And many have taken that phraseology to draw out a phony implication. Oh, I need to love myself better because that's the standard for my love for other people. It's almost treated like a command. Go love yourself first. Then you'll be prepared. You'll have a foundation and a platform to be able to serve others well. I mean, how can you serve other people if you're just beating yourself up all the time? If you have low self-esteem, you're you're no good to anybody. Quite the opposite is true. The the idea of loving yourself here is a concession to our self-absorption. You already love yourself. You already esteem yourself. Even the lowliest people on the earth, the, the most depressed or discouraged people on the earth, have too high a view of themselves. It's often couched the other way around. Right? If you're depressed, if, if you're suicidal, it's because you have low self-esteem. I would suggest it's because you have esteemed yourself too highly. You're not thinking about the glory of God. You're not thinking about others around you. You are absorbed in a pity party about yourself. And I don't want to slight those who have uh, felt so low and so discouraged at, at the end of themselves so that they would be tempted to commit self-murder. What an awful place. It requires much sympathy. But the solution is not think more highly of yourself. You're already there. The solution is going to be get your eyes off yourself. Get into the true gospel. Discover the love of God for sinners when you're at your worst. And out of that flows a a genuine love for others. Jesus commands here to love God and love others in the way that you already love yourself. He's not commending more love for self. He's, if it were possible, raise your level of love for other people to the level of love you already have for you. It's actually an impossible command. It's like saying, tame the tongue. Don't ever sin again, (laughs) etc. Love someone else. Think about someone else's needs the way I Already I'm consumed with my own? That's an impossible standard, and, and that is the standard to which Jesus appeals as the normal way to think about Christian love. And look, if, if someone could exceed their self-absorption in a sustained and lifelong pattern to actually love their neighbor and aliens and strangers, who's my neighbor? Yeah, everybody. Everybody. To the level of their own self-love, we'd have a perfect world. It is the standard; it's an impossible standard. It is what we ought to aim at, according to our Savior. Even the way Paul addresses husbands in Ephesians five follows along this lines. You know the command there: husbands love your wives. How, as Christ loved the church, how did Christ love the church? Well, He died. <laughs> Self-emptying love, self-sacrifice. He died as a substitute in the place of the church in order to bring her to God and make her holy. That's the standard for Christian love in a marriage. Death to self, self self-emptying, self-sacrificial love. We might run to to the dramatic And think of, yeah, a good husband would gladly fling his body into oncoming traffic to to push his wife out of the way and save her. And we sort of glory in the dramatic. There's no greater love that a man has than he lay down his life for his brothers. The marine who jumps on a grenade to to preserve his buddy's lives, that's admirable, that's good. It's a reflection of the self-giving nature of God resident in humanity made in his image. It's a, it's a vestige of what we were all supposed to be. But those flashes of the dramatic, the, the impulse of a, of a husband to be a substitute in the place of those he loves, isn't the normal flow of the Christian life. It, it's much harder for the husband to say, the trash is overflowing again. I'm going to die to self. Set aside my preferences and love my wife. Uh, That ongoing selflessness in small things. It's a real challenge and and that is the command. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 28. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And you could think about this in one of two ways. uh, Their own wives as being their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Don't go down the path of saying, oh, if I'm going to love my wife better, I need to love myself better first. No, you already love yourself. You you take care of your own needs. You're hungry, you walk into the kitchen and get yourself a snack. Do you think about your wife needing a snack before she thinks it? And, And go love her more than you love yourself? That... That doesn't happen. You you already think about yourself and we need to raise the level of our love for others somewhere near the stratosphere of our already present self-love. Let's talk about self-pity. Self-pity is the self-absorption that manifests itself when things are going poorly, not the way I want. Where we think about our circumstances... And we think about our circumstances as an egregious violation of our expectations. You know what disappointment is. It's that gap between expectations and reality. I thought I would get this, and I got this instead. And that space in between is this, oh, grief. It creates disappointment and and things worse than that. Turn to Numbers chapter 11. When there's something wrong in my life, my entitlement mentality rears its ugly head. I'm good enough to deserve better than this. God ought to know he should be running the universe differently than he's doing right now. What have I done to deserve this? And all these people around here that are making my life difficult, they're to blame. And the result is complaint Entitlement, a lack of empathy for others, self-pity, idolatry, greed. And at a very basic level, cosmic treason. I should be on the throne. I should be the center of attention of all the worship of all the 8 billion people on the earth. In Numbers 11, the people, verse 1, became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of Yahweh. Did you catch the gravity of that statement? Can you believe those people in Numbers 11? They had the audacity to be in the very presence of God and complain about how he was running the universe. That's what all complaint is. Before an omniscient God. Even if it doesn't come out the lips, it's in the heart. and God sees it and knows it. And every time we do it, it is in his presence. And These people became like that. We're reading our autobiography here. And when Yahweh heard it, his anger was kindled. The people cried out to Moses. Verse 4, the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And they wept. And they said, who's going to give us meat to eat? And you know the scene in Numbers 11. They've just come out of Egyptian slavery. They've been rescued from the mightiest army on the earth. And they're headed into the promised land. they just got to make this couple-month trek across the desert. And then there's a land flowing of milk and honey that is theirs. And God has prepared it. They're going to enter it during harvest time. All their needs will be met. In the meantime, their shoes won't wear out, their clothes won't wear out, and God will give them food daily. And look at verse 5. We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt free? What are you talking about free? You were slaves. More bricks, no straw. Do you remember how they complained and cried out then? And the Lord graciously rescued them out of slavery. Now they're looking back. What does complaint do? It rewrites history. Your self-absorption will distort reality. You will believe things that are not true Because when you're looking at the reflection in the pond and you're seeing yourself and you're infatuated with it and you want the rest of the world to be infatuated with that same reflection, you will not see the truth. They didn't see the truth here. We were free in Egypt, cucumbers and melons and garlics and leeks. There's nothing at all to look at now except this manna. They've rewritten the facts. They, they remembered Egyptian slavery as being something of an all-you-can-eat delicatessen. <laughs> Self-pity does this. Complaint in the heart is the fruit of being absorbed with what I think I deserve in this moment. And why is God not giving it to me? And why are other people in my way? Don't they know that the greatest love... In all the world is the love of me. (laughs) And we demand that everybody else sing Whitney Houston's song with us at the center. Let's think about self-trust for a moment. We heard this from Robert Shuler. You can't have faith in God until you learn to trust yourself. And these are satanic words. (laughs) Listen to God's words. This is, this is my self-distrust passage list. It's not exhaustive. But, but I want you to hear what are perhaps familiar words, maybe verses you've memorized. But before I read them, think about them through this lens. Should I trust my heart? Should I trust my own thinking? Here's what God says. Trust me. Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your paths straight. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. There's a way that seems right to a man but its end is death. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. But Yahweh waives the motives. Who can say, I've cleansed my heart, I'm pure from sin? The answer is nobody. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for him than for a fool. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But he who walks wisely will be delivered. It's an interesting one in Proverbs 30. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and she wipes her mouth and she says, I've done no wrong. It's obvious to her and everybody else that she has done wrong, but her self assessment is, I'm okay. I can look across humanity and I can see people worse than me. I can have justification for the immorality I've just committed. I can be proud of myself. I can love myself enough to let myself off the hook. Listen to Isaiah 5. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of Yahweh of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. What does God say there in Isaiah 5? That that word woe is a calling down of divine condemnation for those who trust themselves. And that condemnation is just because they have rejected the word of the Lord. The word of God is that which is true And life-giving brings actual hope and rescue. And to trust in self is to stiff-arm that which brings life. It's to camp out at narcissist pond. Staring into your own reflection, it's interesting in Isaiah 5, he actually says, "Their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust." So all those narcissist flowers, next time you see them next to a pond, hey, there's a narcissist flower. What happened? Oh. God's judgment will consume it. A wasted life ending in God's eternal judgment. The woe of Isaiah 5:21 we'll end with a thought on self-exaltation. Self-exaltation. Self-exaltation is just the glory of self as supreme. It it, it does make it sound bad when we call it self-exaltation, but there's still something in our culture that says, yeah, that doesn't, doesn't quite sound right, that doesn't look good. But it is another way to describe everything we've been talking about to have an inflated view of self, to lack empathy for others, to think about self more than others, to see self-esteem as a virtue, to implicitly give myself the benefit of the doubt, and to distrust everybody else, and particularly to distrust God. All of that is self-glory from me and through me and to me. Be all the glory forever. Amen. It is a blasphemous turn of the fundamental purpose of humanity which is to glorify God. Listen to James chapter 2 beginning in verse 14. That's not what I was looking for. How about James 3.14? If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, the wisdom that says self-esteem is the greatest thing you ought to be going after, is not that which comes down from above. It is earthly, natural, demonic. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. I think that's what's so striking about that DSM-5 description, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Analyzing Mental Disorders. They recognize that narcissism is a disorder. And then they describe all the things we ought to have as virtues. But just don't do it so much that you can't get along with people. The whole thing has to go. And it has to go the way of the gospel. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. When we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, we are right to think of a rescue. We call it salvation. It's important to ask the question, what am I being saved from? It's also important to remember what are we being saved unto? And... Whom are we being saved by? And it is right to think theocentrically. We are to be saved from God, we are to be saved by God, and we are to be saved unto God. First and foremost, we must be rescued from God's own righteous judgment against our sins. And it's also right to think in terms of being saved from Satan, the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers, to be saved from the consequences of our sins against God. It's right to be saved from the guilt of our sins against God. It's right to think of being saved out of this present world, and it's right to think of being saved from self. I need to be rescued from me. I need to be rescued from all that I would make of myself if left to myself, loving myself. Listen to Philippians 2. This encouragement to Christians gets us looking at and thinking about the humble one, the one who is due all glory, who emptied himself. Therefore, if any any encouragement is in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. What does that love, what does that purpose look like? Verse 3, here's how it works out. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. There's that impossible standard again. When have any of us ever done that in any sustained way? That's what we're called to. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Messiah Jesus. Who, because he existed in the form of God, because he is God, because he has the divine attributes of the triune God, because he is fundamentally in his nature self-giving, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped after, but he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There's a day coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the one in charge to the glory of God the Father. And the one in charge emptied himself for love. To come and rescue we who were despicable. Look, the self-esteem reformation tried to tell us that the cross happened because we were so beautiful and so lovely and so worthy that heaven just wouldn't be the same without us. And you hear that in Christian music today. You see that in the pop Christian literature you hear that in the psyche of Christian culture but the truth is the infinite awful cost of God the Son coming to earth and dying a bloody substitutionary death on the cross actually means that our condition was so awful our character so despicable our situation so helpless in our self-love that only the death of God the Son in our place could bring about our rescue. So Christian, look to him. Not to Robert Schuler or the Satan behind his theology. Lord, would you dismantle self-esteem in us? Would you tear apart the vestiges of self-love? Would you grant to us by your grace your kind of love, selfless, self-emptying, God-glorifying, others-focused? And we, would we live by your power, by the power of your Holy Spirit in us with that love in view that the world might see Christ in us, not because we are peers, but because you have sought to radiate your character through the transformation of life in us. We pray to live up to that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.